Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So hear the word of God from the book of Genesis, chapter 41, and reading from the first verse. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven ears of corn, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other ears of corn sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven healthy, full ears. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream that very night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Good morning, everyone, and Godfrey, thank you for reading that for us. Do keep your Bibles open. We're actually looking at two whole chapters in the story of Joseph, chapter 40 and 41, and we'll be um, dotting around those chapters in the coming minutes. And I hope you also received on the way in a, this green service sheet. On the back, there is an outline of the sermon, which you might find helpful to have to hand in the next few moments. Why don't I pray for us all as we look together at God's word? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a faithful God. 
And we thank you that there is a rock for us to stand on in this broken world. And I pray this morning that you'd help us to understand afresh of the strength and stability that we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It can be hard to trust God with our futures. So perhaps it's the small things, a Monday morning that just seems too manic, too packed full of things for us to survive. Maybe it's the sudden things. The boss calls us in and it's bad news. We've lost our job out of the blue. Maybe it's the stressful things in life, exams. We all know something of those. Maybe it's the strange things in life. Life is going well, as we expect, and then suddenly out of the blue, it just takes a turn for the worst, and we cannot understand why. We're puzzled by it. Then, of course, there's the sad things. Living in a broken world, we are never far from suffering and sadness in this world. And so as we think about our future, there are the small things, the, the sudden things, the stressful things, the strange things, the, the sad things of this life. And they, they make us wonder, as these things come at us, they, they make us wonder if there is a God who is personally at work in our lives, what is he doing? There'll be many here this morning who, through those hard times, have prayed We've pleaded, and the Lord has not answered those requests as we had hoped he would. It's easy for cynicism to creep into the Christian heart, thinking, what's the point in trusting God for our futures, given what's happened to us already? And then we might continue to profess our faith in Christ. But we are, in practice, we find ourselves trusting much more in the size of our bank accounts or in the skill of our doctors or even in our own stamina and strength to get through what comes at us in life. We're in the middle of a series looking at Jacob and his family, and we reach the point where the main man, Joseph, is in a place in his life where he he has lots of reasons to struggle to trust God for his future. It's now been 13 years since his brothers sold him as a slave, It's been 13 years of of a life where the the graph went up for a bit in Potiphar's house and then it plunged down terribly as he was sent to prison. And notice how verse one begins. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. That's a reference to events that took place in chapter 40. They were referred to in our reading, the business with the cupbearer and um, the, baker, uh, the, the baker and the butler, as I call them. Remember back in chapter 40 how um, both men, the, the baker and the butler, had dreams, and Joseph interpreted those dreams about the future, and his interpretation came to pass just as he said. The butler got his job back, and the baker was hung. And Joseph had pleaded with the butler, when you get your job back, don't Forget about me in prison. Remember me. And of course, the butler forgot. 
And it's been two years since that moment. And so here is Joseph. No one who loves him knows he's alive. There is no rescue party coming for him in prison. The people who do know about him have falsely accused him or have forgotten about him. And here he is now rotting on the floor of an Egyptian prison. And perhaps the most devastating thing of all is that 13 years ago, God gave him two dreams about his future where his brothers bowed down before him. And 13 years on, as he is chained in prison, those promises from God seem to have no, they, they, they bear no resemblance at all to his experience and his life. And so if ever there is a man who would struggle to trust God with his future, surely it is Joseph at Chapter 41, verse 1. And that's why I think what happens before us this morning is going to be so helpful for us. As we see what happens to Joseph in these coming moments, they are here to help us to be a people who, who trust God with our futures. Let's work through the story. And the first point you'll see in the handout is this. God's control ruling over history. We pick up the story, um, and Pharaoh, it seems, is back on the cheese and wine. So at one night, he has a strange dream. Seven fat, sleek cows, and then there's these gaunt cows that come and eat the, the fat ones. It's, uh, it's an odd dream. It's, it's quite distressing. You can imagine Pharaoh waking up the next morning thinking, right, I really must leave off the cheese um, this coming night. But then the whole thing kind of happens again with a very similar dream the next night. This time it's ears of corn. The healthy ones, verse five, grow in a single stock. And then after them come seven ears of corn that are thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin ears swallow up the healthy ears. And when Pharaoh wakes up, by now he's getting quite worried. What is going on with these dreams? And then he can't find anyone who can tell him the point of these dreams. And then in a wonderful twist, the butler remembers. There was this this guy in prison who's actually really quite good with dreams. And Joseph is summoned before Pharaoh. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, I reckon at this point in Joseph's life, after all that's happened to him, he's looking for a break, some promotion. It would have been so easy for him to say, well, well, yes, actually, I am. I am really quite good with dreams. But that's not what he says. Verse 16, I cannot do it, he replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph can tell what's happening He knows that these two dreams are God speaking to Pharaoh about future events. And only God can provide the meaning. And unless we miss this point, notice how it's rammed home for us again and again. So uh, Pharaoh describes his dreams to Joseph. And then look what happens afterwards. Look at verse 25 across the page. Just the bottom of the page. Then he said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh 
what he's about to do. God has revealed. Well, then verse 28. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Or verse 32. The reason why he's had two dreams is because, verse 32, the matter has been firmly decided by God. And so it's very clear what's going to happen. These, these seven sleek cows represent seven years of, of bountiful harvests. The, um, the seven gaunt cows represent seven years of famine. And it's very clear that this is God's plan for Egypt. And just in case we have forgotten how the story goes, it happens exactly how God said it would. Look at verse 53. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. This is so very important. The Lord knows the future. He doesn't encounter time like we encounter it. He doesn't engage with the future second by second as it comes rushing towards him. No, he exists outside of time. He can see all of history at once. And it's not just that he knows all of history at once, it's that he controls it, he brings it about. These two dreams are not a fluke, a lucky guess. Remember the baker and the butler and their dreams? That came to pass. Joseph and his dreams with the brothers, we know how the story ends. That dream also comes to pass eventually. So three pairs of dreams about the future. They all come to pass according to God's promise. God's control. He is ruling over history. Which means that the history of this world is not rudderless We are not like a a small boat being tossed around on high seas with no clear direction or plan. No, there is a hand on the tiller of history who has a plan and that hand is powerfully at work to bring about his promises, his will for our lives and the world. Uh, Atheists who believe that evolution can explain why we are here have to live with the thought that our lives are completely random. They are products of trillions and trillions of chemical reactions throughout time. Which, if when life is going well, then we think, well, so be it. But when life is going badly, then it's a heartless world to live in. But the story of Joseph, indeed the whole Bible shows us that there is a hand organizing, controlling, bringing about history according to the promises of God. He controls the hearts of kings, even Pharaoh. He controls the seasons, the rain, the sun, the crops, whether they flourish or fail. And he controls the individual graph of a man like Joseph. At times it goes up, and at times it nosedives down. Which means that when tomorrow morning rolls around, it's Monday, the start of a new week, It means that there is one who knows what will happen to us and he is sovereignly in control of every single detail and event that comes to us tomorrow morning. 
And there is great comfort here with our future. If tomorrow morning there are small worries, if there are sudden worries or stressful worries or strange worries or sad things that come to us, in every moment of life there is yet still a hand on the tiller of our history. God's control ruling over history. But there's also a challenge for us, is is there not? Because notice how helpless Pharaoh is in this whole story. In verse 8, he has the dreams, but he cannot understand them. He's troubled by them. And then he can't find anyone who can help him out with the dreams. And then later on, when Joseph explains the meaning of the dreams, Pharaoh can't do anything about it. He's helpless. He has to find someone who can put together a plan to save the world. And he picks Joseph, the man who God is with. And you see, the mighty Pharaoh, the king of the most powerful nation in the world, when it comes to making events happen and history unfolding, he's got nothing. And yet so often today, we trust in people who cannot control history. We cling on to our politicians, thinking that somehow they will make history come about. We, we, we cling on to our doctor, hoping that they will sort our futures out for us. And of course, we trust in ourselves, We back ourselves somehow to get through life. And I think at this point, we often don't help our younger people. We tell them that they can do anything. They can be anyone. They can go anywhere. They can dream dreams about what life could be like in the future. We place them in the driving seat of their lives. And yes, of course, we are all responsible for our decisions, But there's only one God who sits on the throne of history controlling everything. And is it not at least in part why so often our young people are depressed and anxious? Why they are often so thrown by exams and what will happen to them in the future? Is it not at least in part because we've not helped them to see that they are not the ones who sit on the throne of their lives? God is. And it's not down to them. Down to him. If the great Pharaoh could not do it, we certainly cannot control history. And so we would do well to copy the humility of Joseph. I cannot tell you the future, but God can. And so when it comes to trusting God with our future, it is a huge help for us to know that he controls it. He rules over history. But that truth on its own isn't really that comforting. Just to know that there is some sovereign hand at work in our life doesn't bring comfort when life is hard. And we need to know what the sovereign Lord is doing with his control over history. And that takes us on to our second point. Next, God's concern, exalting the lowly. It's hard to get much lower than Joseph at the start of Genesis 41. The the butler has forgotten him. And when he does remember him, he can't remember his name. It's just that that Hebrew I met in prison. He's a nameless person. And then verse 14. He comes before Pharaoh. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought before from prison. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Now, don't miss the detail. It's been at least two years now he's been in prison for. 
And without putting too fine a point on it, he probably smells. He's probably a bit shaggy and unkept, long hair, beard. He's probably dressed in rags from, from prison. And that's why he needs a bit of sprucing up before he can stand before Pharaoh. So the story begins with Joseph at rock bottom. But as he interprets the dream, and as Pharaoh sees it, he is God's man to bring it about. And that is how the story begins to end. Look at verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted, make way. This is literally a rags to riches story. The rags of a prisoner replaced by the robes of someone of great importance. The prison chains replaced by gold chains. The shame of being a prisoner replaced by cries of honor. The the captivity of being in a prison cell replaced by freedom to go anywhere and everywhere. And what we are seeing here is that God isn't just in control of history. He is, is working for a specific purpose. To take those who are lowly and to exalt them to a place of great honor. This is God's doing. In our final year in London, we rented a little flat that was close to Pentonville Prison. I used to walk by it every morning on my way to the tube. And then quite often at night, we'd be lying in bed and we'd hear police helicopters hovering around our neighborhood with searchlights peering into gardens and we twigged why the rent was so cheap. And look, yeah, there's been lots of discussion in the news this week about whether our prime minister will stay in her job and if so, for how long. And I'm not here to make any predictions about that kind of thing. I have no idea. But imagine if this week a big black jag were to pull up at the gates of Pentonville Prison and as the gates opened, out walked a prisoner in handcuffs in prison garb shuffling out to the, the big black jag and they got into the car and they were driven away. And then imagine a few hours later, our prime minister were to stand before the media and the cameras, flanked by the prisoner. And imagine if she were to say, behold, your new prime minister. And then imagine the day after, that once prisoner appearing in the House of Commons at the dispatch box with the prison garments replaced by a pinstripe soup and there to kind of chair everything. We would be amazed Shocked, horrified, wondered at what had happened. But that is exactly what has gone on here with the Egyptians. This Hebrew slave has gone from nothing to everything. Who would have thought? Why? God's concern, exalting the lowly. Now, as we read about the story of Joseph, it He's had a rough life so far, and I'm sure many of us are like, well, I'm, I'm really glad he's got a break at last. We're happy for him. It's a bit like hearing about someone who's just won the national lottery. I was reading this week that um, one of the biggest ever winners in this country was called Adrian Bayford. Adrian was a, a shopkeeper on a low salary, living in a small house. He then won 148 million pounds on the Euro lottery, and now he lives in a grade two Georgian mansion with 90 acres of land. 
And when you hear stories about people who won the lottery, well, there is part of us that we're happy for Adrian, but it doesn't help us. We would quite like to be the one who's won the lottery, but we're not, I don't think. And as we read the story of Joseph centuries ago, it's a bit like hearing about somebody who's won the lottery. You think, well, we are glad for them, but, but, but actually we would have preferred to be the ones involved in the story, and we're not. So what does it have to do with us? Here is God controlling history, exalting lowly people to places of honor, but, but what about us? You haven't seen my Monday morning. Well, the answer is that what happens to Joseph has a very great deal to the story that we are caught up in and involved in. There is a pattern through the Bible again and again where the Lord allows his people to go downwards, like Joseph, to the pit in prison, and then upwards to a place of glory. And most fully we see it in a man centuries later who, like Joseph, was, was mocked um, by his family, who was put in chains, who went downwards into the pit. The Lord Jesus, when he came into the world, he died on a cross, the place of a criminal, under the punishment of the Lord for the sins of the world. And there isn't a lower place in history than that point on the cross. Downwards, downwards. But then he was raised to new life. And more than that, he's now exalted in the heavens, sat at the right hand of the Father in a place of ultimate glory. And the shape of Joseph's life, this downwards then upwards shape, is the very shape of the Lord Jesus, downwards to the cross, up to glory. And the thing is, we have been caught up into that story. When we put our trust in Jesus, his story becomes our story. We are joined to him. Wherever he goes, we too go. It's like a, posting a card. If you write a letter and then put the letter into an envelope and you post the envelope, wherever the envelope goes, the letter goes with it, you see. And when we put our trust in Christ, wherever he has gone, we too have gone. And so in his death on the cross, we went down to the grave. But in his exaltation, we've been raised with him. We were once slaves to sin. We've been freed. And the Bible is clear again and again in Colossians 3, Ephesians 2, Romans 6, 2 Timothy 2. We are now spiritually raised with Christ in heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father. We are part of the ultimate rags to riches story in the universe. We are now co-heirs with Jesus and one day, we will receive a mind-boggling inheritance. And so what does this mean for our Monday mornings? Imagine if we do fail our exams. Imagine if we do lose our job. Imagine if this week is a horrible week. Remember God's eternal plan. He has already raised us spiritually with Christ to the place of ultimate glory in the, in the heavens. And one day when Christ returns, what is true spiritually now will become true physically, tangibly with our eyes. And our grades, our career, success, the size of our bank accounts, all these things that we so often cling on to to give us security and status in life, the things that keep us awake at night worrying about the future, we've got something far better 
We've been raised with Christ to the place of glory and honor. And more than that, when that day comes when Christ does return and we are ushered into the new creation and we are co-heirs with Christ over his world forever, I'm almost certain that we won't be discussing the grades we got at university or the size of our bank accounts or how far we got promoted up the, the company chain because we have something far better, a more glorious story that we are caught up in. And so this is what the sovereign Lord is doing in our world. He is busy catching us up into a story where the lowly are exalted. Finally, God's care, saving the needy. And this story is a story of salvation. A famine is coming. It's clear that the famine was so severe that people would die if it were not for the provision of grain that Joseph oversees. At the end of the story, Genesis 50, Joseph looks back and says that the Lord was at work to save many lives. This is a story of salvation. A salvation from hunger and of death. And God's using his control in history to save the needy to provide grain in a famine. And this would have been a great encouragement to the first readers of Genesis, God's people who were uh, freed from Egypt, the Exodus, on their way to the promised land, journeying in the desert with no food, to read about a God who can provide uh, a bountiful supply of grain when there's no grain is a great encouragement. And he did. He provided manna in the desert for God's people, saving the needy. But of course, the grain gives out, the manna stops, and we're left longing for a meal, a bread that never gives up. And Jesus, when he came into the world, said amazingly in John 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And as we think about our future, Yes, there are all kinds of reasons to be worried. There are exam pressures and job pressures and house pressures and just being too busy kind of pressures and so on. But, but the, the biggest concern that towers over everyone's life, is it not the fear of, of death? Yes, the moment of dying, but also the experience of moving towards our death. And the picture of grain Saving a world in Genesis is a foretaste of Jesus offering his body as the bread of life that sustains and saves God's people through into the new creation, the promised land. And I think here is a great comfort that whatever happens to us, the Lord has given us a meal, a feeding of bread that keeps us to eternal life. According to the research done by Alzheimer's UK, one in three people who are born in the UK this year will grow up to at some point experience some form of dementia in their lives. And it's almost certain that if we don't personally experience it ourselves, we will be caught up in a story of caring for someone close to us who does experience dementia. Just one of the ways in which the brokenness of this world, the the reality of coming death is so hard to cope with. The future seems so difficult. And isn't it a great comfort to know that when a person trusts in Jesus, they have received 
bread that brings eternal life, a saving of the needy. And even if there are ups and downs and sad moments along the way, our future in Christ is secure. He'll bring us through this life to the new creation. He's done it through the history of the world, and he'll keep us until that day. At times, we will worry about the future. We, we long to know the specific details of how our concerns will be met by the Lord. And the Bible doesn't give us specific answers to the details of our lives. Instead, the Bible points us to God who does know the specifics. And the Bible shows us his character. He is ruling over creation. His concern is to exalt the lowly. He cares by saving the needy. And so the call for us this morning, even with the confusions and lack of clarity on some things, the call is to trust God for our future. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that there is one who sits on the throne ruling over the history of this world. And Father, we thank you that you have caught us up in this glorious plan for the world giving us what we do not deserve. And Father, I thank you that a day is coming when we are with you in the new creation, ruling over a world put right. Father, please help us to trust you with that future, to trust you with all the ups and downs along the way, knowing that you are at work in all the details to bring about your good plan. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.